you open up to Matthew 18, this past week uh, I went to an ordination council. An ordination council is when you go to interview and test new candidates for the gospel ministry. And you ask them a lot of questions and you see how they do. And one question that was asked, somebody asked them the question, what is a clear sign that somebody is a Christian? And I didn't catch his answer because I was thinking in my own mind, what would I say to that? What would I say? So I was thinking through that. How do you know when somebody's really a Christian? I'd say, well, one of, one of the ways you can tell is the fruit of the Spirit. Somebody just flows out of them is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Another way you can tell if somebody really is a Christian is sin, when they commit sin, it breaks them. They want to change. They don't stay in that sin. And then the third way, it's pretty obvious, I think they love God's word. They love his church. They just want to be around the things of God. But as I was even thinking a little bit more, I think there is one sign in particular over the years that I've worked here when I can really tell if somebody gets it, if they really understand the gospel. And it all surrounds this situation. What does somebody do when they are sinned against? How does somebody respond? Because what I found is the way Christians respond and how the world responds is diametrically different. And that, to me, is how you can tell if somebody's changed. So we're going to talk about that. If you can open up to Matthew 18, we're going to find this discussion in verses 15 through 35. So we're going to look at Matthew 18, 15 through 35. 35. And the reason I call uh, sinned against is because 15, Jesus is going to begin with that scenario. If somebody sins against you, what do you do? And then later on, verse 21, Peter's going to say, well, hey, if I'm sinned against, I won't just forgive somebody. I'll forgive them 77. I'll forgive them seven times, you know, really, really kind gesture by Peter. And then at the very end, in verse 35, Jesus says, hey, if you don't forgive, these are the consequences. So really, this whole thing is about what do you do when you're sinned against? And I'd like to begin posing that question. What do you do? Because I think there's three responses. And by sinned against, what do you do when someone insults you to your face or slanders you? Behind your back. What do you do when somebody mocks you and people that you know and they make fun of you right there? What do you do if somebody tempts you into sin and wants you to join them into something that is disgusting? What do you do if somebody violates your trust? You tell them a secret and they tell everybody else about it. What do you do if somebody steals your money? What do you do if somebody breaks a promise they made to you where they say they're going to show up somewhere and they don't because they got a better thing to do? What do you do when people are just flat out cruel? What do you do? I think there's three responses and I first want to talk about what I would say the natural response. I want you to think about the last argument or fight you got into when you really felt you were wrong or let's say it worked. Somebody got the raise and you didn't get it. Or there's a party and you weren't invited. What do you do? I think there is what I would call the natural response. 
the natural response when somebody sins against me is I want justice. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We want payback. It's called retaliation. Somebody makes fun of me in front of other people. I want to make fun of them even worse. Retaliation is in our bones. We actually, we actually encourage people to retaliate. Somebody embarrasses you, you go get them, man. Strong people don't back down, and I'm a strong person. And how dare you do that to me? I know people who are proud of holding grudges. They're proud that their family holds grudges. You fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, no more for you. I know people that um, love gossip. Do you know what they did to me? What'd they do to you? Oh, let me tell you what they did to me. Can't believe they would do that to me. They're just no good. There are people that love to hit back harder. Good at swear words. Like really good at fighting swear words. Others, others uh, use Facebook attacks. Some take people to court like Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. That's what that is. It's just complete and utter retaliation. Twitter is like the app of retaliation. It's a slam fest. Everything's a slam fest. That's all it is. And then you have the passive aggressive retaliation. This is the person when they're mad, they just won't talk to you. I'm just not going to talk to you. I'll ignore you. I know some people that won't talk to people for years. Well, I'm not doing anything wrong. Sure you are. That's passive aggressive retaliation. I know people retaliate by holding back love, and for spouses, they'll hold back sex. Sarcasm is the, we think it's the funny way to retaliate. Well, I didn't really mean it. Yeah, but you made complete, well, I was just kidding. Were you as you absolutely eviscerated me in front of all my friends? Well, it was funny, wasn't it? Got to laugh. It's retaliation. You hurt me, I hurt you more. That's how we live. Every culture has their own mode for it. There's a second response to when you're sinned against, and it's found in verse 21. Peter came up to Jesus and he said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Well, in this culture, you know, your Pharisee would forgive three. Like that was, somebody sins against me, forgive him. Somebody sins against me, all right, I'll forgive you. Somebody sins against me, all right, it's a third strike, but no more than that. And Peter's saying, I'll give them seven, seven chances. I am so, such a good religious person. A religious person is the kind of person that he knows he can't be like the natural person. I've got to be a little bit better than a natural person. In fact, a religious person wants to look good. They think they're actually doing God a favor. However, they won't die to themselves. The religious person's all, all about the public view. But it's really not about the inside heart. Which leads to the Christian response. And Jesus gives it in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you forgive seven times, but 77 times. Some versions say 70 times seven. But the idea here of Jesus is not, I'm not going to, make you count up to 490. It's just forgive with extravagance. Forgive. Just forgive. 
forgive. Forgive. Just forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. And continual forgive with extravagance. Did you know the best definition I can give for a disciple is he who is forgiven? Don't hold back on mercy precisely because mercy was not held back for you. And how much did God give? Well, he gives a parable. So parable starts in verse uh, 23. And it's called the parable of the unmerciful servant or the unforgiving servant. I did a sermon on this about a year ago. But I want to go through it quickly to get some principles. We're going to learn some principles of forgiveness. And then we're going to go back and talk about how do you actually forgive. These principles are key because they go to your heart. And it's reasonable to forgive. In fact, it's the fitting thing to do if you're a Christian. And you should forgive with extravagance. And here's the reason why. Here's the parable, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So he's this rich king, and he's got servants that owe him money. He takes out the ledger, and he goes, okay, we're going to settle accounts. Verse 24. He began to settle uh, one account. A person was brought to him, a servant, who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold. With his wife, she was to be sold. And his children were to be sold. And all that he had, and a payment had to be made. Okay, so first of all, 10,000 talents. NIV says that's 10,000 bags of gold. In our currency... You added up 10,000 talents, that's $3.48 billion. This person must have borrowed from Elon Musk. That's the point. In the listener's ear, so a talent is 20 years of annual salary. So 10,000 bags of talents, that's 200,000 years of work. The point of this is, is the debt, Jesus is saying, is impossible sum to pay back. You can't pay it back. And a parable is about the kingdom of heaven. So the interpretation is the king is God and you're the servant. You owe God a sum you cannot pay back. You can't. Your ransom price is impossible. Even to the point where bad things should happen to you. Like to the point where, you know, this person... Had to be sold, his wife sold, his kids sold. That's bad. So verse 26 and 27. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Just have patience. Now number one, this is impossible. He can't do it. But he's broken. And out of pity for him, verse 27, the master of that servant released him, and he forgave him that debt. Can you imagine that? Your wife was going to be sold on an auction block, and you, in your mind, you're going to lose your kids, and he's like, all right, all right, I forgive you. Man, that should break your heart. The owner forgives the debt. He didn't have to, but he did. And this parable is meant to show the same kind of incredible mercy God has shown us. He's the owner And he took pity on us, and he forgave us. 
forgiveness basically means is to cancel the debt. That's what it means. So when God forgives us of our debt, it should overwhelm us. It should change us. But in this story, it didn't change the servant. Look at verse 28. So that same servant went out, and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, three months' pay. 200,000 years' pay versus three months' pay. A little bit different? Kind of. Watch what this guy does. He seized that servant. He began to choke him, and he said, Pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. He said exactly the same thing. Have patience with me. I'll pay you. He refused. He refused. And he went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed because in their mind, this is not a fitting response. He's been forgiven the world, and he won't forgive a man who only owes a few copper pennies and a bag of butterflies. That's about it. The fitting response is forgiveness. It's a very small sum in comparison. And in the same way, when someone sins against you, how dare you hold that person guilty? That's why if we continue to read verse 32, then the king summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay back all his debt. In other words, he's in jail and torture for the rest of his life. And the same idea, if you don't forgive, that's a pretty good indication you don't understand what you've been forgiven. And if you don't understand what you've been forgiven, maybe you're not. Verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So the second thing is the reason why we should forgive extravagantly is because we've been forgiven with extravagance. When you sinned, God sent his son. That's why we had communion. God sent his son to pay your debt. Now that's mercy. Enough said. In other words, don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. And don't be angry. What right do you have to be? So, forgive. But how do you do this? Because that's where it really gets tricky. Is forgiveness just, so I just am supposed to be Mr. Happy Guy and everybody walks all over me? I'm just a door stopper. Everybody wipes their feet on me. How do I forgive? Because what Jesus does, Jesus is, I say this often, he's not sentimental. He's very practical. He actually wants you to change, and he wants people to be accountable for their behavior. We actually make each other better. He doesn't, he's not portraying forgiveness as an ability to enable people to stay rooted in their sins. So if they steal from you, I forgive you, but that doesn't mean I let you steal anymore. Somebody hits you and keeps hitting you, or your spouse hits you and you forgive them, doesn't mean they can keep domestically abusing you. It doesn't give somebody the right to take advantage. So what do we do? Jesus gives us 
the path. And it's very clear. Often we use this as the church discipline path. I believe this is the way all of us should behave all the time when people sin against us. It's found in verses 15 to 20. It's the three steps of forgiveness. And the first step is the hardest. I'm going to talk about it the longest. So we go to verse 15. The question is, how do I forgive? Practically, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The first thing we must do is we must go to them. And we cannot miss this. You who've been violated, you who have been sinned against, must take the initiative to seek restoration. It is the hardest thing to do. I want you to notice two things. What it does not say. It does not say, go to the pastor and have him deal with it. This is your job. The second thing it does not say is go to all of your friends and vent, slander, gossip, and give all the gory details of how, person, how terrible the person was who acted against you. It does not say that. And it does not allow for that. All it simply says, when someone hurts you, sins against you, has been sarcastic and mean to you, has offended you, you must make them aware of what they did. Jesus says, it's just between you two. Face to face. Go. This is a hard thing to do. Especially for people who hate conflict. Is there anybody in here who hates conflict? All right, Heather, I got one. I got one. Is there two? Who loves peace? I will do any. Like, there are some people that will, they will, they will be sinned against, and they'll be the ones that said, I'm so sorry. Well, you didn't do anything wrong. I, I know. I just want peace. That's not what this is all about. Don't do that. This is the most important step for three reasons. Three reasons. Number one reason why you must go is that when a person hurts you, often they don't know that they hurt you. They're sort of oblivious. There's a lot of what I'd call rockheads in this world that say something, think it's funny, and they just cut you to the heart. They have no idea. They just destroyed you. Tell them. Because if you let a bitter root grow, it will embitter and enrage you, and it will start poisoning your well. And when your well is poisoned, everything about you becomes poisoned. Your mood, your emotions, your attitude, your opinions, they all become slanted towards this whole idea that I'm a victim, everybody hates me, and ah, that's poisoned heart. Don't be poisoned. The second reason you must go is this, is because if you go to others first, you're going to spread the poison of people that weren't involved in the first place. When you spread the poison, you may be ruining other people's opinions about somebody. If somebody's spreading the poison with you, don't bite. Go to them and say, have you talked to the person before I start taking in this gossip? Gossip is like choice morsels. It goes down to the gut. Don't listen. Don't take it. It's also called slander. Because here's the third reason why you got to go. And it's the most obvious, but we don't think about it too often. 
you don't always have the right perspective. Proverbs 18.17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and cross-examines him. When we get hurt, we always feel justified in our hurt to feel any way we want. And it's not always true. Sometimes it's really skewed. So the reason why you need to go is so you can hear the other person before you make judgments of why they did what they did. I'm going to give you a very simple but true example. This uh, happened in 2004, and statute of limitations are over so I can share it, and I'm not going to divulge names, but this happened to me, and it's true. In 2004, I was just installed as lead pastor at Kent City Baptist Church, and there were some people, a group of people, that were murmuring, saying, I was too young for this job, and I must have done something to connive to get this job. One person who was questioning that was part of this group that was saying he was a young gun who tried to get this position. This person saw me stopped at a four-way stop sign driving three of my children to school early on a school day. They were stopped across from me at the four-way stop by the speedway. They drove past me as I drove past them, and they waved to me. They waved to me through their car. I did not wave back. And the reason was simple. I didn't see them. That's the reason. And yet, because I didn't wave back, they thought it was a clear indication that I was a cold-hearted, arrogant young pastor who was very proud of this new job, and it was a sign that the leadership of this church had no discernment when they put me in as pastor. So, what they did is they started to spread the idea at the school that the new pastor at Kent City Baptist Church was an arrogant young man who treated her with extreme disrespect. And because of what happened, she stopped attending the church, and she started looking for a new church to go to. Someone came up to me a month later after this incident and whispered. They said, hey, I heard that you really sinned against so-and-so, and you need to make it right. It's going around the school like wildfire that you hurt them pretty badly. Whatever you did, it's causing her to tell a ton of people not to trust our church. You better do something about it or everyone's going to think you're a terrible person. I felt terrible because I didn't know what I did, honestly. So I tried to go to the person at school. I saw them at football games, but they wouldn't even look at me or talk to me. Their kids even stopped talking to my kids, and the husband stopped going to men's Bible studies, and I became, in their house, persona non grata. So I went to a personal friend who knew them very well, and I said, could you figure out what's going on? They won't even talk to me. So the person said, sure, I'll go. And this dear friend went, and they came back to me and told me the story, and what they said is simply this, you didn't wave at them at the stop sign. I asked them when this happened. They said, two weeks after you installed. I really couldn't remember the incident. And I really wasn't surprised I didn't wave to them because have you ever driven three kids under the age of seven to elementary school in the morning? <laughs> My kids specifically. <laughs> I would beat them all. Well, don't hear it. I won't say that. <laughs> I'm kidding. I wouldn't beat them. Just once in a while. Anyhow, <laughs> here's the problem now if you think about it. I had no idea I didn't wave to a person. Number two, it took two months of gossiping 
Because this person went to many other people, and people go to people, and people latch on to bad stories about other people quickly. Gossip is unbelievable. And the third thing is I never had a chance to state my case, or even if I was wrong, to hear how I need to change and grow. So when someone sins against you, go to them, just them, face to face, because that's what Jesus said. But what if they don't listen? That's where we go to step two, verse 16. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two to three witnesses. So, in other words, bring two godly people with you. You you don't bring them to blast the other person. You don't bring them to corner the other person. You bring them simply to listen and to weigh the evidence, because you still may be wrong in your assessment. I would have loved to known I didn't wave at that person. I would have loved to, because honestly, truthfully, waving is not that hard. Aaron, Aaron, wave back. Hey, Aaron, how are? it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun. Carson, is that you? Carson, good to see you over there. I'm not waving to you, Will. I have you no good rotten. Anyhow, but here's, but I want you to, I want to bring a quick insight on step two. Maybe that's why this doesn't happen in forgiveness because those who feel they were wronged often know deep down in their heart they were wrong. So they don't want to go because they might have to change too. So often what people do is they will be the first at slander because if you can tar somebody else, it takes responsibility off you. I think that's a big part of gossip. A lot of gossip is from a person who's too scared to confront. But the point of, but the point of step two is to bring a case, a solid case, to know who's right, who's wrong. But if what happens if they don't repent even then? We go to verse uh, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him to be you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Did you know, this is hard to believe, but this is true, some people don't want to be forgiven. One writer says, there is an erroneous belief that God forgives everybody. That's not necessarily true. The Bible is full of stories of people who were not forgiven Because forgiveness is conditional, must be received. And repentance and genuine sorrow is a sign that it's been received. Some people want to keep being as they always have been and really don't want forgiveness. What if they don't receive the offer of forgiveness? Must I still forgive? Jesus says, treat them like a tax collector and sinner. What this means in context, according to one scholar, is that in conventional Jewish sense, that means to the Jew who is listening, what Jesus is saying is the listener who's listening to him is being instructed that there are times when you should suspend normal fellowship because somebody will keep offending you, offending others, and they're running God's name into the dirt. We no longer allow them to keep taking advantage of us, nor should we allow them to continue to dishonor the name of God. By their willful disobedience. In other words, they are no longer to be included in a worship with God, those in church. 
We can still love them and keep reaching out to them, but love does not and will not celebrate or excuse their sin. I'd say there's a huge danger at this point, big danger. This is like flashing light danger. Whoop, 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 whoop. There are some people who desire peace at all costs. They're not part of the situation, but they like to think that they understand the struggles of people more than the rest of the church. And they believe themselves to be people that have more mercy and empathy than others. And often those people can interfere with the work of God if they offer false compassion. Some people are proud of their tolerance. And sometimes tolerance wrecks the work of God and enables and even encourages the sinner in his or her sin. Let me kind of give you what I'm going to call the four seasons of sin. Hopefully this will make sense. So when someone starts sinning, James says sin is like a seed that goes, that is planted. And in time, that seed will have poisonous fruit. So the season that is planted is springtime. Springtime, in this season, sin is often, it often begins as a curiosity. I, I kind of taste, nibble, huh, kind of tastes better than people told me it was. There's a sinister goodness to sin at first. Hmm, nobody told me it was this sweet. Springtime, the seed starts going in, but you don't see any growth yet. So you're not too worried. Then summer comes. Summer is that seed that was planted is beginning to take root. Habits are forming. Early poisonous buds are sprouting. Some people are noticing and they're warning you, those closest. But you still don't think it's a big deal. Because God doesn't really seem to be wrecking your life. In fact, it really is tasting better and you're starting to get addicted to that sin. That leads to the season of fall. The seed that was planted is starting to bear rotten fruit. What you were once doing in private is now seen publicly. People notice. Relationships are beginning to break and fray. Some of the people you once ran with are distancing themselves from you. Your family's embarrassed for you. Church people are trying to apply Matthew 18 because they love you. I'll say that again. Church people are trying to apply Matthew 18 because they love you. If the person does not respond in the, the third season, the winter's coming. I call it the winter of wrath. The reason Jesus says treat them like a tax collector and sinner is because he wants them to feel winter's wrath. Sometimes it's the only way to get a person to take their sin seriously. I can remember I was, I was watching Alone. It's a show on Discovery, I think, where these people are dropped off in Alaska and they try to last for 100 days. And they start in October and then it goes to December. And it's hard to live. And one lady's feet were getting frostbitten. And she's like, I want to stay here, but I can't even feel my toes anymore. And her, feet, her toe was turning black and they brought somebody in and said, I'm sorry, if you don't leave and quit this right now, you may have to get your foot chopped off. That's wrath. It's to wake you up that I am doing something that is destroying me. That is destroying me. So when the cold of the north wind starts blowing, people start waking up. 
Sadly, sadly, some of the bleeding heart, falsely compassionate people will invite the sinner in to listen. They will feel sorry for them. They will blame the church for sending them out in the cold. And they start offering the sinner shelter from the cold. And when you offer sinners shelter from the cold, it stops wrath from doing its job. That's what Psalm 107 is all about. You want to read a psalm about wrath? Psalm 107. But it's good wrath. And four times it says, the person caught in their sin cries out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. And when they were finally saved, then they said, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Wrath wakes you up to really how dark you can be. That's the point. And if you rescue somebody from that, they're never going to be restored. And that's really where 18 to 20 come in. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The church, the church has the ability to help somebody feel forgiven and feel the full mercy of God. The church also has a way to say, I'm sorry, we cannot tolerate that behavior. And people leave and they feel like they're bound. Read 1 Corinthians 5, when somebody sins so bad, the church was told to send him out so that Satan can buffet him. Verse 19, again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And this isn't just about general specific prayers, or general prayers. This is about specifically when somebody ask for forgiveness for the church. For where there are two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. What's the point of forgiveness? Restoration. God wants us to be a family. He actually started chapter 18 as we're all children and sometimes children err and some of us need to be brought back and restored. God wants people back. God wants his family living in unity and peace. God wants us not to live in bitterness, rage, hating each other. As Ephesians says, he says, be kind and compassionate. Forgiving each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. This morning I read an article. It was a really interesting article. It's one of the saddest articles I've ever read in my life. And it's about... I'm sure all of you guys know the transgendered issue with pronouns. So, for instance, if I'm a guy, but I want you to consider me a girl or a, bi, a non-binary, if I'm a guy and I look like this, but I want you to treat me as a girl, my pronouns will become her, she and her. I will want you to use those pronouns. And actually, if you don't use those pronouns, now we say, we, I can get violently angry with you if you don't use my pronouns. Well, this article is about a person who is a non-binary. Looks like a lady, but wants to be considered a they, them. And the title of the article says this. If you think my pronouns are optional, we can't be friends anymore. In other words, if you don't call me by the pronoun I want to be called, I'm cutting you off from my life. And this article is really sad, actually. It talks about how Friends and family don't know what to say to some transgendered people. And, you know, at first this lady said, I gave, I gave a lot of grace to him, but I realize my pronoun means a lot to me, and I cannot forgive somebody who won't 
use the proper pronoun. So one of his friends, or this person's friend said, what if they say the pronoun right five times and the sixth time they use the wrong pronoun? What are you going to do? This person says, well, they're not going to be my friend anymore. What this is saying is this is saying, I have no forgiveness. If you don't live the way I want you to live, I'm done with you. Do you realize how cold the world is getting? People have no forgiveness anymore. We don't tolerate, like really tolerate people anymore who might have slighted me. I'm going to sin against you. You're going to sin against me. Jesus says, stop judging. Why? He died. He died for you. He paid the biggest debt you ever owed, and now somebody said a bad name against you? That's nothing. God wants us to be family. He wants us to be united. And what Satan is doing is he is separating us from unforgiveness in ways. I know people that won't come to our church anymore simply because they're mad about some silly slight. Why can't you forgive? There's probably somebody in here that has hurt you. Why can't you forgive them? Go talk to them. You're probably saying, I'm not talking to them until they talk to me. Do you know how the phone game works? Say you have a room here and there's a phone. There's a room here and there's a phone. This person feels like they offended them, so they said, I'm not going to call them until they call me. So this person's sitting in their chair like this. This person's over here either not knowing that they hurt them or they're saying the same thing. I'm not going to call them until they call me. Nobody was going to talk anymore. That's what's happening to a lot of our relationships. Because we don't know, we really don't believe he died for us. Man, he let you, he let you go free. Let people go. Let them go.